Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMEA. If you are interested in learning more about our organization, please go to georgiamta.org. Today, we are joined by Lois Finley. Hello, Lois. Good morning. Let's get started. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Well, my passion is teaching students. And I've been teaching for quite a number of years now. I've also performed a fair amount, but I think the top, the, the top most, most pressing issue is the teaching. And I certainly do love it. And tell me about your journey. How did you get to where you are today? Oh, I, I'd love to tell you how I started. When I, when we were, when my, fa- I'm an only child. So when my family moved from one suburb to another in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, there was a piano in the house. So they tell me that I looked at that piano and said, I'm going to play that. And so we were there for a few months and my mother would invite any child that I, any friend that I had over. And she found one little boy who had nice curved fingers and looked like he knew what he was doing. So she called his mother and asked who his piano teacher was. And personally, I think that's a good way of finding a piano teacher. And I know for a fact that some of my students come to me because their parents and friends have been have done that same thing. So I immediately started taking piano lessons. Uh, as we as I grew and I got this was I was about six. As I got into about sixth or seventh grade, the neighbor who was a clarinetist and played in the Pittsburgh Symphony came over and knocked on my mother's door one day and said, you know, I don't think Lois is making much progress anymore. I think she needs a new teacher. <laughs> so with that encouragement, I started studying with the teacher that seemed to be the very best one in the whole area. And I did study with him all the way through high school until I went to college. Can I ask about this neighbor? Did the neighbor get the sense that you weren't um, learning or growing because they just heard music coming from your house or did they show up at your house and listen to you play occasionally? No, they just heard me play. The piano was on their side of the house. So when I practiced, they could hear my you know, they could hear my growth for a few years and then it got so apparently I wasn't, I wasn't doing very much. Wow, fascinating. What Mm -hmm. was practicing like for you as a child? Did your parents have to force you to do it or were you self-motivated? Oh, they had, I I was a normal child. I didn't want to practice, okay? I wanted to play the piano, but I didn't want to practice. So I managed to practice after dinner while they did the dishes. Now I thought I was getting away with not doing the dishes and they thought they were getting away with me practicing. So that turned out to be the best practice time all the way through high school. I did that, I I did that all the time. And at what point did you decide that you were going to become a musician? Because I imagine that there was a turning point in which you decided that this was going to be your career, that you were going to study it in college. I don't remember ever knowing that I was not going to be a musician from that very first time that I looked at that piano and said, I'm going to play that piano. That's what I remember. And as an adult, I have realized I'm in the minority among people who have chosen a career based on something that early in their lifetime. And I now understand, but it took me many years to understand why 
kids didn't know what they wanted to do when they grew up. So let me ask a follow-up question to that. Why are you a musician and a teacher? Was there someone who was particularly influential in guiding you to this path? Yes, there was. I had a, I studied the violin as well as the piano throughout high school. And I know at one point the violin teacher told my mother, I think she needs a new violin. And my mother was, well, it's, you know, quite expensive. And he said, it's all coming back someday. It's all coming back. And I think his attitude that I was worth it and that I was going to be a musician, I think that helped a whole lot. Can you break that down a little more for me and for our listeners? What was it like learning two instruments? Did learning one instrument inform your learning on the other instrument? And how was balancing the practice demands of both instruments? Oh, that's easy. I practiced the piano. I played the violin. I played in all the orchestras in town and I took lessons every week. And I know one time we were heading to a recital that I was going to play a, a violin solo on it. And my mother turned to me and said, I don't think I've ever heard you practice this. Do you know the piece you're going to play? <laughs> and I said, of course, mother, of course, which I did. I knew it. <laughs> so I was reading information about you in the Georgia Music Teachers Teacher of the Year Award article. And it talked about how you went on to Juilliard to study piano there. Can you tell me about your journey to Juilliard and what was the culture environment like when you were there as a student? When I was a junior in high school, the man that I studied with a piano uh, had a student who went to Juilliard. And I visited New York and visited her uh, for a weekend uh, during my junior year. And that, that settled it for me. That's exactly where I was going to go. However, during the last two years of high school, I had some illness and I was kept out of school for a few weeks each year. So at the end of high school, my parents didn't want me to go off and live in New York City so far away by myself. So I, I went to the University of West Virginia for a year. But... I was about the best pianist they had at the school at that time. And I realized during that year, there's uh, staying at that school would not be helpful to me. So at the end of that year, I very brusquely and abruptly told my parents expecting a huge fight that I want to go to Juilliard next year. And they didn't fight me. They said, okay, I think you're all right to do that. So I had then contacted Catherine Bacon, who was my first teacher at Juilliard and uh, arranged with her that I would go be one of her students the following year. And so it, it was all a very easy transition. I was making a big deal over it, but it was not difficult. What was that transition like going from a school where you were the best pianist to one of the best music schools in the country and maybe even in the world? Um, was that challenging for you in any way? Of course it was, it was. Uh, they made me repeat the first the freshman year of theory. So I at least got in a class where I was ahead of everybody in the understanding of the music theory and so forth. And they were training and sight singing and all of that. One of the best things at Juilliard was the non-music courses. We had academic teachers who were from Columbia University, which was a few blocks away. And they were given free reign to teach the academic classes uh, any way they wanted to. And that was, I enjoyed that very, very much. It was a very exciting work. Uh, of course, I struggled a little bit with piano because 
I was not uh, I was not the performer that perhaps some of the others were, but I enjoyed every moment of my my career at Juilliard. What were some of these classes that were offered that you speak so highly of? Oh well, I we had uh, language classes, we had uh, uh, English classes, but and then social studies, and we did not have the sciences. That that was the that was part that was that was uh, not not there. Hmm. Let's turn our attention to teaching. So did you always know that you were going to be a teacher? You talked about knowing that you were going to be a musician and a pianist, but what about teaching? Yeah, when I was in about sixth or seventh grade, I started teaching the kids up the street from me. And that was just a real joy. And, and so, yes, I always wanted to teach from that point on. How do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? <sighs> That's probably a difficult question to answer. I, I approach each student as though that student is going to be the best musician in the world. So I do not set a preset limit on what I think the student can do. And I think that's been the biggest uh, part of my success was the fact that I can, I can be open to them accomplishing as much as, as possible forever. What does that mean, practically speaking? You have a student that you're working with, you're deciding repertoire for them. Um, what, what does that look like in terms of lessons, repertoire decision, um, not limiting the student? Well, I encourage all the students to participate in everything that comes along, such as the Bach competition, the Sonata competition, the GMTA, the uh, National Federation of Music Clubs auditions and the National Piano Guild auditions. So they're always preparing for something. And so I to give them a, uh, an overview of the, of the repertoire from all the different periods of music history. And I try to stand to, to stick with standard repertoire because I'm thinking the fact that it, you, there's all kinds of obscure things in the world to play. But if, if I'm going to teach them to become musicians, they need to know some of the basics. So I do try to stick with repertoire that's pretty much in the standard standard repertoire. Mm. This brings me actually to one of your teaching tips that was offered in the uh, Teacher of the Year article on you, where you said to put your students' interests above yourself. They follow your advice because they love you and trust you to plan the best for them that you can. When there is an opportunity to perform, let them enter. In the preparation is the success and the advancement. Winning is just Correct. bonus. How do you communicate that to your students, that the, the preparation is the success, that winning is just a bonus? I just tell them play, play it out. Let's have fun. Let's learn how to play this piece. Play it the best you possibly can, and you will, you, you will be a fine performer and we don't ever discuss the fact that they're going to win or not mm. um i wanted to share with our listeners another tip that you also shared in the same article you said always be in the process of learning new things to share recently when one of my high school students heard me talk about taking a piano lesson myself his eyes got very big i <laughs> said well, don't you enjoy your lessons he gave me a huge smile of understanding, and I think he practiced twice as hard that week. Tell me about that, um, learning new things for yourself. Oh, yes. Uh, 
I, I love delving into new repertoire. I do, I do take students' advice when they say I, they, I, they'd like to learn this piece or that piece, or you know, I, I, we, we, try, we try to expand their repertoire uh, equally, both, both mine and theirs. And I let them know right away, this is a piece I don't know very well, let's learn it together. What are your goals for your students and what are your goals for yourself? My goal for myself is to wake up every morning and be happy and thoroughly enjoy what I do. That's seriously my goal. The goal for the students is that they should enjoy their practice and that they should play the best they possibly can. And what would you say is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining success in a student? You have to have both. I understand that. But the work ethic is probably more than 50% of it because if you have talent but don't don't work, you, you have nothing. And if you have no talent but you work hard, you have quite a bit. And if you have talent and you work very hard, you have a whole lot. A follow-up question to that is, what do you do about a student who doesn't practice? How do you motivate them to practice? I show them how exciting the music is. If they've come back with the Clementi Sonatina that they haven't practiced, I show them the exposition, I show them the first theme, the second theme, the chords, the everything else, and pretty soon they look at me like that. Nobody told me that before. If they've had previous previous teachers, that was a most recent comment that I got. <laughs> Do you have any musical or pedagogical projects that you're currently working on? I have a duet partner, Catherine DeWall, who is also a MTNA member. And she and I have played piano duets for many years together. And right now we're working on a new program and we're going to a workshop. You mentioned taking lessons. We take lessons on our duet music and uh, enjoy that very, very much. We're going to a workshop in Vermont in September. Tell me about some of the biggest teaching challenges you have faced and how you overcame them. That's not a real good question because for me, that's not a really good question because I don't feel that I've had a lot of challenges. I feel that things have gone very well. I have students that haven't succeeded. I've had uh, particular jobs that I have not liked as much as others, but I, I feel like it's been, it's been easy to make this career of mine work. Has mm -hmm. it always been this way, even from the beginning? How has your teaching career evolved from a young teacher to now a very seasoned teacher? Well, when I first started, I decided that I was not going to teach short lessons. I was going to teach hour lessons. So when I, when I first came out of college, I set my fee so that people could afford to study hour lessons. And that's been a huge part of the success because I have time with each student. I don't have to, I don't have to just say play page seven and then, okay, next week play page eight. Uh, I don't do that. I have plenty of time uh, to, to teach them all these other little things and encourage them and, and let, let the music speak to them. I see. Do you have passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching? Oh, yes, I do. For a number of years, I uh, have owned horses and been a horseback rider. And I, although I don't have a horse at the moment, I don't do that any longer. I play pickleball and I have a, an electric tricycle, recumbent tricycle, and I go tricycle riding all the time. So I have, and I like to hike. So I do outdoor things.
Yeah, it sounds like you're very active and full of energy. I, I try to be. <laughs> Tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? Oh, well, I moved into Atlanta from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1971. And uh, the neighbor next door knew I played the piano. And one afternoon I got a phone call from a fellow Georgia, uh, Georgia music teacher. And I didn't, I didn't have any idea who she was. And she said, well, her name was uh, Betty and she was from uh, the North Cab music teachers. And her, my next door neighbor had met her and, it, and told her about me and gave her my phone number. So I immediately joined the North Cab Music Teachers and became a full blown member of GMTA and MTNA. And I've been active in, in that group all these years. So since 71, you said? Yes. That's 50 years, if my math, yes, it is. <laughs> if my math is correct. Um, have you noticed any changes and evolution in the organization? Um, what can you share with us about the history of GMTA through your long time in association with this organization? Well, I'm sure there have been many changes. I know that, I know that the students in the competitions play more advanced repertoire for their ages now than they did way back when I first started. So that my teaching has advanced the, in the, that same fashion to keep up with the, with the times. And I think students in general today can learn way more things at a time than they, they did 50 years ago. That's interesting. Um, why do you think that is? Why is it that students are playing more advanced repertoire now than 50 years ago? There's so much communication in the world now that there wasn't then that we know all kinds of things much quicker and faster and better and uh, more depth. And you can just ask Siri anything and you have the answer right away. <laughs> so it's the same thing with with the uh, music lessons and so forth. They they uh, they learn all kinds of things much quicker. Can I ask one last question from you? And that is, do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and professional life? Yeah, never give up. We've heard that one before. That's come from a number of people in various uh, professions. And I think that's the bottom line. I think you keep trying. I think you expand your own personal knowledge. I think you love every student that comes along. I have one final story to tell you. When I was a new teacher, I had a student who didn't seem to be real interested in the piano and didn't progress very well. And one day I suggested, have you thought about taking art lessons or something different? And do you know what she did? She threw the music across the room and stormed out. And I said to myself, huh, I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to always assume that the student is there because the student wants to be there and because the student can learn and achieve. So I've stuck to that rule ever since. Wow, great. Thank you for that. Thank you for that advice. And thank you for that story. 
And so that brings us to the end of our interview. Thank you, Lois, for your time, for sharing your insights and your wisdom with us. This was a fun conversation for me. I wish you happy teaching and happy students. Thank you very much.